Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Scott Cooper, managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, or A16Z, one of the world's top venture capital firms. Scott helped build A16Z from the ground up, joining the firm at its inception and having served with its co-founders, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, previously at an early SaaS company called Opsware, where Scott worked for eight years and held a variety of senior management positions. Scott serves on the boards of several A16Z portfolio companies, including Cedar, Foursquare, Labster, and Headway, among others. Scott is also a published author, releasing his first Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It, back in 2019. If all of that's not enough, Scott serves on the boards of the Rhodes Trust, St. Jude's Children's Hospitals, and Stanford Healthcare, is on the advisory boards of NYU and Berkeley Center of Law and Business, and is a lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, teaching on entrepreneurship and venture capital, among many other leadership roles he holds. I want to give a huge thanks to our friends, Alan Marty at Legacy Venture and Peter Levine at A16Z for sharing great questions for Scott today. We have been so looking forward to having Scott on for quite a while. And so today's episode was a real treat. It was an amazing conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. Without further ado, we bring you Scott Cooper. Scott Cooper, sir, I have been so, so excited to have you join us on the Investing in Integrity podcast. I've been looking forward to this day for what feels like a lifetime. How are you and where are you calling in from today? First of all, thank you. I'm doing fine. I'm actually sitting in uh, Los Gatos, which is where my house is. So we're still kind of somewhat hybrid these days, although I do find myself actually going to the office more. So we can obviously talk about what life might look like in a post-COVID world, although we're recording this at a time where the post might be in question, I guess, based on some of the more recent <laughs> news. We'll see, we'll see where that all goes. Right, right. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. This is such a privilege. I want to start off our conversation today discussing your career trajectory, just so anyone that's not familiar with you your story gets a sense uh, for who you are and how you've gotten to where you are today. Can you just begin by telling a bit about your life story and your career at a high level? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a little bit of a background. So I grew up in the great state of Texas in Houston, and I came out west to go to school, uh, which was an amazing experience for me. I'd never been to California before and uh, was lucky enough to be able to go, out of school, go to school here. And I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer was kind of my basic career plan. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of went through undergrad and then I ended up applying to law school and I ended up staying at Stanford for law school as well. And about, you know, kind of after my first summer in law school, I started to get this itch that maybe being a lawyer wasn't exactly uh, what I had hoped it would be. And what I found was I was always very attracted to kind of the transactional side of things, kind of the business side of things. And I felt myself more attracted to the business deals around deal making and the business ideas as opposed to kind of, you know, a lot of the legal framework around deal making. And so that was kind of the first, you know, kind of hint that I had that maybe I should kind of take things in a different direction. Uh, and I was mostly lucky, which is I graduated at a time in 1996 where uh, being out here was a great place to be. The internet was just starting to boom. You, you know, it had Netscape's IPO in 1995, which really kind of kicked off what turned out to be a huge, you know, boom. And then ultimately a temporary bus cycle, obviously, in the dot-com era. 
And so I was able to find a job as an investment banker, you know, servicing technology companies in that area. Not quite frankly, because I knew anything about that, but just because I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And as the person who uh, hired me told me, we basically just need bodies to sit with these deals and make sure they get done. So it was not a ringing endorsement of my skill set, but a uh, more an indication as, which is true, I think a lot of times in life that being in the right place at the right time, if you're purposeful about that can obviously be very uh, influential. So that's kind of where I started. And then, you know, we can talk more about kind of the arc of where I went after that, but that was kind of where I started, uh, started my career was uh, doing deals for companies in the technology uh, boom cycle. Thank you so much for giving that brief uh, initial overview and Clearly, they didn't have a chance to see your skills right, before they had the opportunity to endorse them, as time has told us. After a few brief stints at banks, you spent eight years at Opsware, an early yeah. uh, SaaS company in Silicon Valley. I want to hear the story about what drew you away from the relative safety of Wall Street to join a yeah. startup. Yeah, so this was, you know, a lot of it was, it was just the time we were in. So, um, you know, I was, as I mentioned, I was in banking from like 97 to 2000, which was a fantastic time. And as a young banker, there probably wasn't a better learning experience because you compressed probably about three years or whatever, you know, 20 dog years into less than three years of actual time. So the learning was immense. What I found though was I would go on these roadshows, which is where you would take a company public, right? And you would, you know, kind of go with the management team to pitch the various institutional investors. And I just found myself increasingly talking to these founders and talking to these, these management teams and realizing, wow, like that seemed like a really interesting thing to do, to not just be the agent for them as a banker, but also to be principally involved in the development of a core business. And so just by happenstance, I took a company public uh, in 1999 called Epiphany, what's the name of the company. They were in the customer relationship management space. So uh, there's no reason why you or your audience would know them because they were a darling of 1999 that promptly disappeared in the you know dot-com bust that happened many years later. But it figures importantly in my career, which is the person who I was working with in the marketing team on the on the IPO roadshow called me the day that the IPO priced and said, hey, it's been great getting to know you. By the way, I quit today to go join this new company called LoudCloud that Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz and uh, two other co-founders, Tim Howes uh, and Insic Re, had started. And he's like, you know, you ought to, if you're interested, I'm happy to introduce you to them because they're looking for smart people to basically help build their business. So this was September of 1999, and that was exactly the month when they started LoudCloud. So I said, sure. I was, uh, you know, again, I was smart enough to not turn down the opportunity to meet Mark Andreessen at the time. It's hard to recall this now, but you know Ben Horowitz did not have the public profile that he does today. Mark was certainly well-known because the Netscape IPO was still very much on people's minds. And so that's how I ended up there. Uh, LoudCloud became Opsware. Uh, so that's the kind of continuity from a team perspective. But you know, I went in initially in areas that I knew, which was in the finance organization to help uh, you know, run a number of functions there. And then probably the most formative experience I had there was one day Ben said to me, look, as long as you're here you may as well learn something that you don't already know. So you're in a company, you ought to go into an operating role as opposed to staying on the finance track. And, uh, you know, he did a crazy thing like putting me in charge of engineering organizations, which admittedly uh, I had no expertise and no um, reason to be doing, but he's like, look, basically <laughs> you can't screw it up too badly uh, because like, you know, we know generally who you are and we know what you're capable of. Uh, so I did that. I And then I actually opened up our international offices and then I spent a bunch of time in the field. So running our professional services support and um, pre-sales organizations. But I'll just I'll just pause there for one second, because I think it's an important lesson that I learned in the startup community that Ben was the one who taught me this lesson, which is the beauty of startups is if you can find a company that is in a high growth mode, it doesn't have to be a startup. But I think startups are particularly attractive in this right you do have the ability to compete for opportunities inside the company that you would otherwise not be qualified for if you were interviewing from the outside. 
right? So I use my example, you know, of, you know, being, a, you know, an engineering manager, like nobody in their right mind would have hired me from the outside had I applied for that job had I not been working there. But what you find in startups, right, is startups will always have fewer people than they need. They're always trying to run faster than they possibly can. And so there's a huge premium on, do we know, do we trust, do we understand what this person is capable of doing at a functional level, even if they're not necessarily a domain expert in the area, oftentimes that is still a lower risk and a better path for you know a CEO to put somebody in that role than to try to go outside. And so to me, that's as I talk to particularly students coming out of school, I think it's a really interesting aspect of startups that gives you kind of you know a breadth of opportunity that quite frankly is just very hard to get in a more established company. That's incredibly helpful context. And I think it actually segues really well into my next question. A lot of our students who might be listening to the podcast they might be thinking banking, startups, a number of different potential career paths. And even for uh, some of our mid-career, you know, later career professionals, they might be thinking of pivots too. In 2007, Opsware was acquired by HP, right? LoudCloud becomes Opsware, eventually is acquired by HP. Can you describe the cultural shift of going from working at a smaller company that you had built over a number of years to suddenly working for a giant corporation? What changed and what remained the same? Yeah, it was a big uh, cultural shift. And look, I give HP a lot of credit, which is, you know, they had done a number of acquisitions of smaller companies. And so they, like a lot of big companies, literally had an entire apparatus set up for what they call integration. So they're literally in HP, and you'll see this in many big companies, they literally have integration teams. And those teams are distinct from the deal teams who do the deal. They're, they are the team whose job it is literally to kind of minimize the tension, minimize the conflict, and, you know, make it, make these integrations as seamless as possible. Now, the funny thing was when we did this deal, uh, Ben Horowitz asked me to run the integration on the Opsware side into HP. So I show up at this meeting and it's me and there are 50 people on the HP side. Literally, that was kind of what it looked like. And so it's a good example. <laughs> it's a good example of also where now that I have this sensitivity of having me in through it, you can imagine, right? Yeah, the, you know, kind of what we thought the integration team required versus what they thought was quite different. Now, of course, over time, <laughs> I created a virtual team of other people that I needed on our side to help make it work. But it was very good. I would say, look, the, the big challenge in these integrations, and I think this is where, uh, unfortunately, big companies can go wrong, is they spend a lot of time on important stuff, right? Like we spend a lot of time on how do we integrate customers and how do we integrate systems and how do we make sure on day one every has, everyone has email and all that's important. It's, it's all extremely important. But I think people tend to minimize the, the face-to-face and people integration aspects of the business. At the end of the day, look, I'm a firm believer. People people will stay at a company because they have they've developed deep relationships there, and they have colleagues and coworkers they respect. They have a manager who cares about their career development, who is going to you know kind of help them uh, in their career advancement. Or fundamentally, they just like you know they are they've drunk the Kool Aid, right? They just fundamentally believe like this is going to be an incredibly important company that's going to you know kind of change the world. And I think people forget that. And so in these acquisitions, right, the only assets these companies have, particularly in the technology industry, are people. And I'd say that's the one area that was kind of the hardest thing and where I tried to spend the most amount of my time, you know, as the integration lead on our side, which is, yes, like we got to get the email working and other stuff like that. But what's most important is who is this person going to be working for? What is their job going to be? What is the scope of what they were doing in HP compared to what they were doing? And that was a lot of the time that we spent. And so that was kind of the big risk of culture shock was just, hey, we were a 500 person standalone software company going into, I guess at the time, probably 120,000 person company and figuring out how we make sure that we help people understand what their career opportunities could look like and what the path forward was, was probably the most important thing that we did. And look, I'm happy to say we did a great job. We, we didn't you know, lose anybody in that integration process. And you know, I would say most people stayed 18 to 24 months. And then the people who found that, you know, that job was good for them and they had career development stayed and other people felt that itch again to kind of go out and do new startup opportunities. 
I appreciate you sharing um, that moment when you're staring at 50 people. I would imagine this is almost as an auditorium. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, right? This was before this was before the days of Zoom, right? So we actually did in person. Yeah, it was probably yeah. I can't remember exactly what the room was, but it was a very big uh, conference room. Yes, no doubt. I appreciate you sharing that because that actually ties to a question that I want to ask in a little bit. That one of our mutual friends, Peter Levine, uh, suggested I might ask you. You only stayed with HP for a year until you joined Mark and Ben and starting Andreessen Horowitz, what it is today. What inspired you all to take that leap and for you to take that leap with them back into the unknown? Yeah, so I stayed probably about a year and a half in total by, by that time, finally, all was said and done. Look, here's what happened was, so in the summer of 08, well, let me take one step back. So after we sold the business to HP, Mark and Ben had each, uh, had each, you know, built some own some of their own wealth uh, through, you know, Mark had obviously, you know, had two successes now, Netscape and then LoudCloud Opsware, and Ben, of course, was at Netscape, but most of his financial success came, you know, as the CEO of Opsware. So each of them had developed their own personal wealth, and what they started doing was angel investing in companies. And for the people in the audience who don't know what that is, is basically, you know, it's individual people who are writing checks out of their own checkbooks as, as investors in startup companies. So they might write $25,000, $50,000 checks. Some of the companies they invested in were, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, you know, companies like that. So companies that, you know, they didn't all, of course, they weren't all of that caliber, but, you know, they did some very good personal investments. And then what happened was in the summer of 08, the three of us got together and they said, look, this is a lot of fun. But we think we can have a bigger impact on the ecosystem if we institutionalize this and go raise a proper fund and kind of be actually make this our full-time jobs as opposed to just the two of us kind of doing writing checks out of our own checkbooks. So that was the beginning of the conversation. We spent a lot of time over the fall of 08. And funny enough, or not funny at the time, I guess, we finally made the decision, or I, I should say, I finally made the decision to join in a weekend in September of 2008 on a Sunday, the night of which and Monday morning was when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. And at the time, I was still working at HP, and I was living with my family in North Carolina because we had moved out several years earlier to go run a business that Opsware had acquired. And so here I was sitting in, uh, at the time, Cary, North Carolina, with my family, having committed to you know, do this effectively startup job, which required that I you know, sell our house in North Carolina, you know, move my family back to California. And all of a sudden, it turns out you know, this thing called the global financial crisis is actually now what everybody's talking about. So it was a interesting time. You know, look, I mean, luckily for me, I was able to make the right decision. And, you know, look, my rationale at the time was kind of, hey, look, I had a lot of confidence, of course, in the two of them. There was no question about that or else I wouldn't have done it. But I also felt like, look, from a learning and a professional development perspective, if this worked, it would be phenomenal. And quite frankly, even if it didn't work as a business, I thought I would learn a huge amount. And worst case, I would have to go find another job in California at some point in time. But with kind of, you know, with their support and their backing, and other stuff like that. So, you know, in while it was a hard decision in many respects, it was easy in the sense that if you think about kind of the long arc of network development of relationships in your career, this was another opportunity for me to kind of build on an existing relationship that I knew kind of capped my downside in the sense that even if the core business didn't work, this was probably a set of relationships that was valuable for me to kind of, you know, quite frankly, attach my wings to. So the relationships and the learning, it sounds like were two core, very, very important drivers in that decision. Yeah, that was that was right. And again, you know, to me, relationships and networks are critically important. I can't remember if you and I have talked about this, but one of the things Mark told me when I first started working with him and Ben in 1999, 2000 was he said, look, your goal from a professional perspective in the arc of your career should be that you never have to create or submit a resume in order to get a new job. And when I first thought about that, I didn't quite understand the full ramifications of that. But to me, the big takeaways of that are number one is 
the way you advance in your career is number one is you work hard and you demonstrate your value to whoever it is that you have to be working for at that time. So job number one, of course, is to perform the job you're doing at an exceptionally high level. But the outcome of that is you do that, but you also have to do that in a context where you're constantly building new relationships over time and constantly thinking about, you know, not necessarily what my next job is, but like, how do I expand the scope of people that I interact with? How do I expand the scope of people who can kind of observe my work product and see that, you know, I'm a capable and qualified person? And so what Mark was really saying was the reason you wouldn't need that resume or that job or in the future to get that new job is that there would be enough people over the arc of your career who, when they when a job would come up, they would just say, wow, like, I know who the right person is for that job, right? I don't need to see a resume. I don't need to interview anybody because I know that, you know, whatever Ross has demonstrated his capabilities in other areas and he'd be a perfect fit here. And look, of course, you know, nobody just hands you a job, but I think it's an important thing to think about, particularly as a student is... Doing your job, obviously, is critically important, but doing your job in a way also where you continue to think about ways in which you can expand the purview of your work and you expand the range of people who know and have a chance to observe your work product, I think is a really important thing from a career development perspective. I think that's incredibly salient and helpful advice, especially for our students listening, but for literally anyone listening. And I'll even plus one that if I may, Scott, I think I've talked to you about this in my two years now doing Scholars of Finance full-time. One of my former co-workers at SoFi who left and is now at one of the major technology companies in, in, in a major fintech organization reached out to me and said, hey, I've got this product management role. If you'll take it and you can pass the loops, I will hire you straight away, making three times what I make here at Scholars of Finance. And my answer was, hey, that sounds really interesting. I'm so grateful you reached out. I'm way too committed to this mission and I'm changing the world and the world desperately needs scholars of finance. So if this all falls apart, I'll give you a call. But otherwise, I'm, you could offer me a million dollars a year and I'm not moving. I actually want to tap into and, and talk a little bit about your arc at, at A16. You know, you helped yeah. build Andreessen Horowitz from the ground up as one of the, you know, the founding team members into one of the most prominent venture capital firms on the planet. Um, can you describe the journey, you know, your role in that growth, how your role has evolved, what yeah. your role is today? What was the most challenging, the most surprising, the most rewarding? Yeah, let me give you some perspective on the journey. So look, the first job I had, there was no job description, there was no nothing. Basically, Mark and Ben said to me, look, we want to build this investment firm and we want you to basically help us build it. And we, Mark and Ben, are going to primarily spend our time investing in companies and sitting on boards. And so can you just go figure out like, what does it take? What are all the other things that have to happen for us to do this? And it was at the time exciting and interesting. At the time, it was scary in that I had no idea what the job was, quite frankly. Uh, and as I said, you know, like, you know, <laughs> best laid plans, there was definitely no job description for it. And so literally, I mean, from day one, I mean, it was everything as things as unglamorous as we were setting up an office and, you know, I had a summer intern actually who worked at the Stanford Management Company, which is a, a currently a limited partner of ours. Stanford Management Company is the group that manages the endowment on behalf of Stanford University and they were an investor of ours. So we took this intern who was uh, leaving and he was going to be starting at the business school the next fall. And I told him, I said, look, I have no idea what your job's going to be either, but I'll tell you, like, we're going to find interesting things to do to basically, you know, help this firm get off the ground. So we did everything from like going to Costco to buy folding tables to make sure we had, you know, seats in our conference room before our furniture came to setting up bank accounts. And, you know, what in our business, you have to, you know, have to call capital, meaning you have to get money from your investors in order to make investments. And then I had to learn how to actually do deals. And then, you know, what it's a, what it evolved to over time was really kind of, I think about it as kind of, you know, a couple core areas. Areas. Number one is I have and, and have had a general management job. And what I mean by that is there are certain functions 
that require professionals just to be able to run the day-to-day of the business, right? So, you know, we have to have a finance team and we have to have a legal team and you have to have an IT team and an HR team. And those are not that different from what you would have in a company. They just happen to have different, you know, types of domain expertise. And so part of my job has been, okay, managing those teams and make sure, you know, they know what they're supposed to be doing and people are held accountable and people have the right objectives and metrics and all that good stuff, right? So that's kind of a general management job, which, you know, happens to be in the venture business, but looks probably like a general management job in any other company. Second big area I spend a lot of time is on the investor side. So uh, obviously in our business, the lifeblood of our business is we have to raise capital from institutional investors who then give us their money so that we can invest in it, uh, invest it in companies and hopefully generate a high enough return to you know make them uh, a good return on their investment. And so I spend and still spend a lot of my time meeting new investors. Sometimes those are university endowments like Stanford. Sometimes they are big foundations like the Ford Foundation. You and I were just talking before we got on this call. You know, I, I just was in the Middle East a couple of weeks ago meeting with what we call sovereign wealth funds, which are kind of large institutions that tend to be funded by the government and the government's trying to diversify, you know, kind of the asset base and the income stream by investing in people like us. So I spent a lot of time developing those relationships, raising capital from those individuals and institutions. And then on an ongoing basis, of course, making sure that they know what's happening, we're communicating with them, they feel like we're doing what we need to do. And then the third big piece I spent time on, and and then I'll I'll mention a fourth, which is newer for me, is on the third big piece is what I would call kind of fund or strategic management. And so what I mean by that is when we make an investment, what are the criteria by which we want to make that investment? How do we decide two years from now whether we should put more money in this company or not? What's the construction of the portfolio? So do we have too much exposure to early stage companies in this sector? And should we have more diversification in different areas? When should we sell an asset, right? So sometimes, you know, we're lucky in that our companies go public and we end up with public shares in a company. And part of the decisions we have to make is, you know, do we hold on to that stock? Do we think it continued to grow? Or do we feel like the company has accomplished, you know, the, the objective that it was that we intended when we invested in it? And therefore we should return that stock and that money back to our investors. So all the things around kind of optimizing for the ultimate goal of the firm, which is how do we you know, earn a high rate of return for our investors? And then the fourth piece, which is new in the last like several years for me, is now I do spend more time principally on the investing side. So now I have a chance to work as part of our growth team and invest in new opportunities that are kind of at a, at a growth stage instead of very early stage. And then I also spent a lot of time on new initiatives for the firm. So, you know, we rolled out a new growth fund a couple of years ago that I was responsible for. Kind of, we have a new bio fund and a crypto fund. We're working on other new ones. So kind of as we think about new funds and new growth initiatives, I spent a lot of, lot of time there trying to identify the right people outside the firm we need to bring in, making sure that we have a cohesive story going out now to our investors to raise capital. So it kind of, it kind of bridges all those different areas. In the process of building the firm, what have been the biggest challenges that you faced? What's been the most difficult in the in the process over the years? You know, there are a couple of things I guess I would point out. Look, with any company, and this is true of ours, we don't, well, I shouldn't say any company, but I would say most companies that we deal with, which are software companies, look, we don't really, we don't produce anything. We don't manufacture anything. We are essentially in the people. And quite frankly, I like to think of us as we are in the customer service business. That's basically what we do for a living. And everything we do is about, do we have entrepreneurs who kind of feel like we respect their processes, we help them achieve their goals. And ultimately, if we do that well, then they will tell other entrepreneurs that we are good investors, that we are good people, we're good board members, we're valuable contributors to their organization. And that's how the flywheel works in this business. So like anything, you're trying to build what I would call a network effect, right? And so the hardest thing, of course, for the network effect is you have to bootstrap the network, right? You know, when you first start Airbnb, right, you don't necessarily have renters because renters don't want to buy if there's not supply of houses. And of course, people who have owned houses don't want to put their houses on if there's not supply of renters, right? So 
the, the trick of a network is bootstrapping it and making sure that both the demand and the supply side, of course, stay in sync. And that's kind of a little bit about our business too, which is we needed to build a network of people who knew us and who could ultimately hopefully say good things about our capabilities. And we had to bootstrap that initially by getting out there and telling our story and kind of telling people what we believed in ahead of us actually being able to show them uh, those opportunities. So that was kind of thing number one. And what that always comes down to is people, right? And so the lifeblood of any of these businesses is people. And so that's always the hardest thing. It's still the hardest thing is recruiting, retaining, growing your best people. You know, look, we live in a competitive world and that's always, uh, always a challenge. The other challenge, I think, for a lot of us, since a lot of us came from the operating world, is this is a little bit of a weird business in that in the operating world, you're used to kind of 90-day cycles, right? You have a quarter. And it's very clear what your objectives are, right? So if you're in the sales organization, you know, you have a quota. It's very clear if you make your quota or you don't make your quota and you get kind of what I would call, you have a report card, you know, pretty much almost every day, right? You certainly have a report card every quarter where you can kind of take a step back and say, okay, I was supposed to do this. You know, how did it work out? And it's very quantitative and very measurable. The challenge in this business is, number one, the timeframes are incredibly elongated. So we really don't know oftentimes when we invest in a company whether it's going to be successful for three, five, sometimes seven or eight years, right? And and sometimes you get false signals up front, which make you think you're a brilliant person and that you, you know, can do no wrong. And then other times you also get false signals on the other side where thing it takes a couple while for the company to kind of figure out what they're doing. And therefore they may sometimes plot along at a growth rate or in a path that's different from you want. So what's really hard, I think, in this business is getting yourself comfortable that you're not going to get a report card on a regular basis, that you really have to kind of be very careful about how you judge both mistakes and quite frankly, how you judge success and and learn the right lessons from those things. I think the big mistakes in this business are you can confuse yourself and think you're brilliant because you might have an early success that may or may not turn out to be an enduring success. The company could ultimately turn. And then importantly, if you make mistakes early on, you can also talk yourself into learning the wrong lessons from those mistakes, and that can cause you to be too risk averse and therefore not be able to be successful in this business too. So I think that's probably the biggest difficulty in this business is just finding the benchmarks for what actually is a proxy for success and making sure you don't misinterpret those guideposts along the way. I'm finding myself reassured because as I'm building scholars of finance, I feel like yeah. the challenges that you face, several of those are the exact same challenges we sure. face. Even as a nonprofit, hiring is even more difficult when I don't yeah. have a you know huge exit up- upside to offer someone. And then when we're, we're doing something that's very intangible, when we're saying we're, you know, we're inspiring character and integrity in the investors of tomorrow, you know, purpose-driven, values-based leadership and, and, and investment stewardship, that's not measurable by its, by its very nature. So I just I want to say I appreciate you sharing that. Your role in the firm has been described as, by one of our our mutual friends, Peter, he has described your role as transformative for the firm, quote, nothing short of amazing. He says, you're a very smart guy and your real superpower is finding common ground. And this actually reminds me of what you said earlier about on your role in the integration into HP, just focusing on the people aspect of the business. Um, and then you also have a really crazy work ethic, which goes a long way. And I, I've noticed that in our conversations, like I really prepare whenever you and I have our <laughs> mentorship calls, you know, to make the most out of our time. That said, would love to just better understand for anyone listening, students or investors, you know, what do you think are some of the most important personality traits or character traits that you see in people that are markers of success? And let, maybe we can make this yeah. located yeah. to the students. Like think yeah. our yeah. 18, yeah. 19 year olds listening. Yeah, look, let me say a couple of things. So um, first of all, 
look, at the end of the day, you know, in your particularly in your first jobs, you know, coming out of college, right, you will have jobs that probably have very clear and very measurable outcomes in many respects, right? So, you know, many of you might go into, you know, as you mentioned, people might be consultants, or they might be bankers, or you might go into roles where the job descriptions are pretty clear, it's pretty clear what the liberals are, and that's, that's good, and that's perfectly fine. So I think, look, Job number one for anybody coming out of school and starting their career is clearly you need to do you need to do what is expected of you and make sure that you do that in a very, very high quality manner. I know that sounds like mother and apple pie, but I would say that's that's job number one. But I would kind of think of that as it's kind of table stakes at some point in time, which is there's lots of very smart people out there who can do a functional job that they're assigned to do. To me, the people who ultimately can go on to, you know, have, you know, even bigger careers and bigger opportunities are people who recognize a couple of things. So let me give the listeners a little bit of analogy. So whenever I talk to students, I like to say, look, if you're a student, you have been largely living in single player mode in a linear model. Okay, so let me try and explain what I mean by that. So single player mode to me is literally, for those of you who play games, is basically meaning that like you're not really competing against anybody else. Now, of course, at some point in time, you know, there's only so many people who can go to a Harvard or Stanford. So you're implicitly competing. But single player mode to me means that in school, I can generally get an A because I work hard and I study for the test. And you can also get an A too. And the fact that I got an A in most cases doesn't mean that, you know, you couldn't also get one, right? It's they're they're generally mutually exclusive. And linear to me means again what it, what it sounds like, which is it's very clear what's required to go from one step to the next in your career development. And I put that in air quotes as a student, right? Which is, you know, if you want to go to a great college, okay, you need to do well in high school and you need to do extracurricular activities. And, and, you know, if you want to go on to a banking or consulting or other job, right, it's very clear what the path is, right, in many respects. What happens when you go into the working world, right, is I think you go from single player mode to multiplayer mode and you go from linear to nonlinear. So the multiplayer mode is kind of what I was starting to explain, which is it's no longer just a requirement that you actually perform well in your function. It's also uh, a you have now a dependency on other people for success in the organization. So that dependency could be just the success of the business. That dependency could be who the other people are, whose work you know you rely on or who relies on your work and others. And so you're now in a multiplayer mode scenario. And I think this is one area where I find sometimes students earlier in their career can not misstep, but I would say just forget that ultimately for them to be successful in an organization, they have to not just do their work product, but they also have to understand how their work product gets used, who relies on it, and make sure that they start to build and develop relationships in other parts of the organization. So that's kind of the multiplayer mode. And then the nonlinear piece to me is really more about, quite frankly, being willing to embrace risk and take on new opportunities. And so, again, so much of, you know, you've seen this, Ross, and we've talked about it, so much of career path is you might think there's a goalpost out there that's linear, but the reality is, you have no idea what the actual line is to get there, to be completely frank. And so I think people tend to be too focused on, I do this step, and that enables me to do that step, which enables me to do that step. And either that puts them on a very, you know, on a path that they may never get to, because they may ultimately realize that some of those steps don't actually lead to the steps they thought. And two is, I think it can lead you to be a little bit myopic in your willingness to think about opportunities and risks from a career perspective. And what I mean by that is, look, I'll use my own example, right, is the only reason I'm sitting in the seat today is because I happened to meet this guy, you know, at this IPO in 1999, who introduced me to Mark. And the only reason I got was there because a roommate of mine from Stanford University introduced me into this job in Credit Suites First Boston, which is how I got on that account, right? And, you know, all these things, like in retrospect, I can build a very linear path. The reality is those are all circumstantial things that just happen to happen. And I think that's true, particularly as you go farther in your career, is think less about the particular job and the particular 
uh, look, pay is important. You want to get paid, but think more about what am I going to learn? What's my contribution to the organization? Who am I going to work for? Will that individual be willing to invest in my career development? Like those tend to be much more kind of earnest predictors of success over time than do, you know, whether you get a job at Goldman Sachs coming out of college or not. And by the way, Goldman Sachs is a wonderful place. So that's not a, that's not an indictment of Goldman Sachs at all, but like there is a world outside of Goldman Sachs and many people who don't end up with jobs at Goldman Sachs will also be successful in life. Thanks so much, Scott. It's incredibly, incredibly salient. And I think it's so important for people to hear, even you know who aren't students who are later on in their career. I'm surprised at how many times I meet people who are my age, you know, late 20s, early 30s, who are still living life as if they are in single player mode and still seem to think that life is linear. I will note that the people I see who are still living life in single player mode are less successful and also seem just less fulfilled and less happy. And and in addition to that, people who see life as linear, they just also seem to be more anxious on the whole. And these are just my observations, just generalizations. I can't like back that up with data. No, I I think that's right. The other observation I tend to have is I think people overestimate downside risk and underestimate the opportunity of what we do in this business, which is uncapped upside, right? And so, look, I obviously, I, I haven't met many of the students who are part of your organization, but look, the fact that people are in this organization probably means they're at a very respectable university. They obviously are smart. They care about their career development. And in many ways, quite frankly, that is your uncapped, that kind of capture downside, right? It's very unlikely that, you know, kind of obviously tragedies happen to people, you know, at various points in time, but it's it's very unlikely that you will not be successful at something you decide you want to pursue in your career, right? And, and success, of course, has lots of varying uh, meanings. But most people who are listening to this podcast or part of the organization have, in many cases, you know, capped their downside. And so I think in many respects, what you want to try to lean into as much as you can, and obviously everybody's situation is, is unique, is can I find opportunities that create uncapped upside? And uncapped upside doesn't necessarily mean just purely financial upside. It means, am I going to maximize my learning? Am I going to maximize my exposure to new ideas? Am I maximize the, the number of interesting people I'm going to meet along the way? Those are all, to me, uncapped upside opportunities that I think can make it easier for you to be willing to take the risk on something that appears more risky, but is really less risky because you've really, you already live in a capped downside world in many respects. As you're sharing that, Scott, it leads me, I think, actually to a segue into another question that I wanted to ask you, because you talk about uncapped upside. And this is, I think, what venture capital gets its reputation partially from is this notion that, you know, one in 10 are a winner, but there are 10 or 100 to 1,000 next winner and that balanced the portfolio. And I want to talk about the impact that venture capital has. Um, One of our current advisory board members, JC DeSwan, um, he's a lecturer at Princeton, at Cambridge. He teaches ethics and finance at Princeton. Uh, he's also a partner at a hedge fund in New York. And he wrote a book called Seeking Virtue in Finance that just recently was released, where he argues that venture capital is the single most impactful method for deploying capital as measured by the effect that it can have on people's lives, the way that we can create the most social good dollar for dollar, because the capital in, in VC catalyzes new industries, new innovation, new companies that create jobs, ultimately, which improve society and accelerate humanity's efforts at solving the world's problems. Second, he, he places a private equity. Third, activist investing. And there's sort of a list of how he ranks them. I want to ask you, how would you describe the impact that you think you have as a, a principal, as a venture investor? So number one, I think the most important thing that we believe, and I, and I believe very strongly in this, is look, at the end of the day, the people and the persons who do those things are the entrepreneurs and the people who are at the operating companies. I think of venture capitalists as, quite frankly, we are just facilitators in some respects, right? So we can provide a source of capital. 
hopefully we can provide some value add to people. Uh, but I just, you know, just I would say personally, I don't want to confuse the virtue or the value of a venture capitalist from the virtue or value of an entrepreneur who is actually, you know, kind of creating new businesses and new jobs. So I, I agree overall. I just want to make sure that we're very clear about, uh, you know, in the balance of power here, uh, you know, kind of the kudos and the praise certainly goes to the entrepreneurs and the people who join companies. And it's a wonderful job to be a venture capitalist, but uh, I don't want to confuse uh, the work that we do versus the work that other people do who are truly out there on the front lines. But look, I think, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't read that book, but I'm going to, it's on, um, I wrote it down so I can put it on my list now. Um, I, I would agree with a lot of the basic premise, which uh, to me, venture capital, I think does a couple things. Number one is, look, it, it provides a financial source of businesses that otherwise don't have good sources of capital to be able to get them off the ground, right? Either they're too risky, they take too long, whatever the case may be. And I think there's a really important role for that in society, right? Which is there are lots of things that lots of innovations that we would all like to have and could benefit from that can't be financed through the normal means. And I think venture capital is a is a good vehicle that kind of matches the risk appetite of an investor with the risk appetite of an entrepreneur in a way that facilitates that. Look, I'll tell you, you know, look, we're, we're talking about this, obviously, in what we thought was post-COVID, although we're reading about, you know, Omicron or whatever it is now these days, the new variant. And I bring that up only in the sense that, look, I mean, you know, this isn't just because of venture capital, but it is innovation, which is the only reason why any of us are back to work in any reasonable way is because we have this had this miracle of modern science that enabled a company to be able to develop a vaccine in literally like 48 hours without even having a live version of the virus, right? I mean, if you read the, the story of the original Moderna vaccine, they basically figured out the vaccine in 48 hours. It takes obviously a long time to get testing and get production and stuff. And I say that, you know, not that, you know, science is a panacea for everything, but that's a type of a type of risk and a type of innovation that kind of, you know, we want to have in this country and, and we absolutely, you know, is critical. And I think venture capital as a lubricant for that kind of entrepreneurship and risk is critically important. And the, the third thing I would say, which to me is is probably fundamentally the most important thing, and it really goes to a broader societal question that we've been talking about a lot, you know, recently is how do we think about economic opportunity? How do we think about social inequity in our country? And, you know, what you see historically is lots of kind of, you know, very, you know, successful and, you know, wealthy people and wealthy businesses on the coasts of the countries, right, in, you know, California, New York, and Boston, and other places. And you've had this concept of what people call super cities, right, which is the idea that kind of those cities attract smart people, therefore they do well. And then when they do well, you create this network effect, which is they continue to attract very smart people. And to me, one of the most exciting things about entrepreneurship, particularly in a post-COVID world, is it creates the opportunity for lots of people in lots of different areas to have similar uh, economic growth and job growth and ultimately to create economic opportunity for lots of people. Now, historically, the cities have absorbed more of that. I do believe in a post-COVID world, which I believe we will be in at some point in time if we're not there already, you will have the opportunity for greater geographic dispersion of job opportunities. And I think entrepreneurship is, again, a real lubricant for those types of activities. And I think if we can do that, we can create economic growth, we can create job growth, we can also address, uh, you know, a, a significant portion of income inequality by, you know, making it easier for people in whatever geographic areas they are to think about and be able to have financing for and opportunities for growth in, you know, startup-like ecosystems. Thank you so much. And I, I think that you mentioning entrepreneurship being a lubricant, as you're saying that, I find myself even thinking that entrepreneurship may be absolutely central to that. When you sort of look over time at how economies and societies evolve, um, an economy, you know, we talk about economies in abstract terms, numbers, yeah. sense, growth, you know, metrics, but ultimately an economy is just people 
doing certain jobs or doing certain things, applying their time, their talent, their energy into, into certain places. And as you as a venture capitalist, being able to deploy 20, 40, 60 million dollars into a growing city for an entrepreneur there who's got a great idea. And for that to turn into millions or billions of dollars of capital flowing into that market over years and decades, I mean, that can completely transform the landscape of, of our planet, you know, in yeah. terms of the dispersion, as you mentioned, I think that's really, think really that's, interesting. Right. And I think, look, I think what's also important to remember is it is part of a broader ecosystem, right? So in other words, you know, and I've, I've written and talked about this before, look, the government does play a very important role in these markets, right? So the government as a source of foundational research and development activity and research many of which is done, obviously, at a lot of the universities that many of your students uh, attend. That's a critical piece of it. And I, I think you know the role that venture capital can play is to often take foundational enabling technologies that get developed in research laboratories, you know, marry those with entrepreneurs and risk capital to be able to build businesses. And then over time, of course, to your point, you need then you know later stage financing opportunities as well to be able to scale these businesses. So Venture capital, while look obviously is very important, it is it is it exists as part of a broader ecosystem of how do we take raw you know foundational technologies and ultimately build you know transformational companies or do transformational things like building vaccines that ultimately can hopefully enable us to actually get back to you know the the, the real world that all of us would like to be a part of. Right, or to use an example that hits to, close to home, actually create the internet. <laughs> yeah. Right, when you think back to Netscape. That actually segues into a question. One of our, another one of our mutual friends. I recently had lunch with Alan Marty, yeah. and he suggested a couple of questions. I ask. I actually want to ask one that he he shared. You're techno optimists. You, Mark, Ben, the team. You know, if you can build the very best teams, be in great markets, you may not hit, see a cycle like we saw in 2000. You know, public markets to a lot of people feel really hot. There's a lot of conversation about a six percent inflation rate. Tech stocks seem highly valued. Late stage private is even highly valued in a lot of people's opinion. Um, what's your opinion and the, maybe the firm's opinion on the next five to ten years and what those yeah. are going to look like? So, look, everything you said is true. So I can't argue with anything you said from a factual perspective. That being said, so look, we are we are techno optimists generally, but that doesn't mean that obviously we believe we can live in a world without business cycles. So I, I do believe in business cycles, and there will be. My experience, though, has been uh, two things. One is that as much as people like to forecast things, very few people actually have success in, in these things. And there's just there's just too many variables. Like many of these are not like linear stochastic systems, right? And so it's it's very hard to do that. For anybody who who uh, likes Twitter, I, I, I'm a big Twitter fan. So I, I tweeted an article that came out Sunday night, I think it was, from Bloomberg that was talking about a research report that Goldman Sachs macro analysts put out about the new variant of COVID. And basically, if you read the research report, it said there's four scenarios. It could be like the stock market might go up because like it'll be better than it'll be less bad than we expected. The stock market might be neutral because it'll ignore it, or the stock market might go down because all of a sudden, you know, everybody's fears. And so, and, and I said somewhat jokingly, like, you know, which is true, is nobody knows is the honest answer. And this is not, I'm not trying to denigrate economists at Goldman Sachs because they're very smart, but the reality is like it's very hard to make these macro forecasts. So to answer your question then. The honest answer is I have no idea. So I don't know whether I would agree with you on a relative basis valuations are high. We've been in a 10-year bull market. There's no question about that. What I don't, what I really have a hard time knowing is okay, like how can I predict when when or if that will change? I mean, presumably history tells us it will change at some point in time. We know that. And so I don't want to give you a cop-out answer, but what that means for us though is we need to focus on what we can do at the micro level as opposed to the macro level. At the micro level, our job is. We need to find amazing entrepreneurs who are doing cutting edge things, who want to take, want to go on a 10, 20, 30 year journey, 
and try to build something amazing. And I'm quite confident if we do that, we can survive business cycles because, you know, like good things will get financed in, in those markets, even if it's a tough market. And then it also means we have to be careful that when we invest at the later stage in a company, we need to be mindful of what those risks are, right? So are we investing in a company where they need to raise money every 12 months? And therefore, if we have a concern about the macro environment, maybe that's not a great idea right now to do because, you know, we don't know for sure that the markets will be as robust as they, you know, have been in the next 12 months. So I think there's things we can do at the micro level, but, you know, I really just try to stay away from kind of the macro forecast because I just think we don't know. There's a great, uh, by the way, I forget what it's called, but there's also a great, it's either on Twitter or elsewhere. There's a great um, article basically every year, essentially from like 2001 or 2002, somebody has predicted that the, that the tech bubble is going to burst. And look, at some point they will be right because, you know, even, you know, as we know, a broken clock is is right at least two times a day. But as interesting as it is, we've been having this discussion for a very long time that everything feels rich and overvalued. You know, look, the optimist in me says what this is, is a recognition that technology continues to play a more and more important and a more pervasive role in all of our lives. And that doesn't mean it's doesn't mean every company will work. It doesn't mean things are worth infinite amounts of value, but it does. It's, it's not surprising to me over time that you might recognize the value and the importance of technology through higher valuations and, you know, more optimistic views of how big some of these companies can become. Thanks so much for sharing that. And you mentioned uh, thinking in the long term with the 10 year bull market. It's real. I tell a lot of people if you take the Dow Jones industrial average and you go out to the max view at that chart, you can see 2000, 2008, you can see up to 97, 2008, all these major dips. When you look at those in a 12 month cycle, they look horrific. But when you zoom out and you look at it on a 60, 70 year time horizon, it's suddenly a very beautiful graph that's kind of more or less smooth up and to the right um, that's growing exponentially. You also shared a lot of your thinking as an investor. Can I transition into a couple rapid fire questions? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. What do you think for those who are aspiring to be future VCs or better VCs? What are a couple of traits that make a world class early stage and growth investor? Yeah. So there's three things. There's three things you got to do to be successful in this business. You got to be able to source. You got to be able to find the great deals and great entrepreneurs. You got to be able to pick the good from the bad. And then you have to be able to actually add value to those companies in their journey, basically. So those are the three things that uh, you got to do. We can, we, can, we can spend hours on those, but that's in, in rapid fire. Yeah. Those are the three things that matter. For those who want to become founders, and I hear from more and more of our students that they want to be founders, what are the traits of exceptional entrepreneurs? Yeah, there's so many. But look, I think probably the most important in my mind is, can you convince rational people to do irrational things is how I would describe it. And so what I mean by that is, look, can you basically convince, you know, as Mark and Ben did to me back in 1999, can you convince somebody to quit a, a very good paying, very safe job that has a very clear future to go join a crazy startup that has a one in a thousand chance of succeeding at the end of the day. And so, you know, whether you're, it's, you know, your evangelical skills, it's your kind of, uh, you know, kind of preaching skills, whatever it is. And I mean that in a positive way. I don't mean, again, you, you know, none of this is trying to hoodwink people, but it's, can you create a compelling opportunity that causes people to do things that quite frankly, as I said, like might be irrational at first blush. Amazing. For those people listening who, and my, I'll actually include myself in this. I'll use myself as an example. Uh, what key advice would you give to anybody who wants to build an organization that has a long-term impact on the world that has real staying power? You know, what advice would you give me? Look, I think that the, you and I talked about this a little bit. Look, the most important thing is, you know, the most important job of you as the CEO is two things. One is to obviously create the long-term strategic vision of the company. And then I think the other most important job of a CEO is make sure the trains keep running. So 
The biggest failure modes, I think, for CEOs is they don't enable decision-making to happen in a rapid enough pace, and people either try to intuit what the CEO wants them to do, or they are waiting for the CEO ultimately to make decisions. And so I think those are two critically important things. And so creating an organization that where everybody understands the objectives, everyone's very clear about what a decision-making process is, and then also people are very clear, at least in my mind, that as long as everyone understands the objectives, the tactics that which people go about to try to accomplish those objectives is something that you're really ultimately relying on the people you hire to do. And so a less prescriptive organization and one that actually encourages people to you know, kind of figure out the right path as long as we all agree on what the right endpoint is that we're trying to get to. Thanks so much. Uh, two last rapid fire questions. I know we're coming up on time here. Sure, yeah. uh, you've been you've been very involved philanthropically over the course of your career, holding various positions at places like the St. Jude's Children's Hospital, Stanford Medical Center, the Rhodes Trust, among many others. Um, with such an illustrious career and a busy life, how do you pick an organization to help, and how do you make that fit into your life? Yeah, it's uh, increasingly hard to find time as you know you just get busier and busier. But look, my I just feel incredibly lucky and I feel like I've been, you know, lucky in so many respects to meet great people and and be able to kind of accomplish, you know, all the things that I wanted to in my professional career and I just feel like now I'm at the stage where, you know, organizations that, you know, kind of reflect my values uh, that enable me to kind of, you know, give back, quite frankly, is really an important thing that I want to do. So it's uh, that's really the main that's really the main focus. Thanks, Scott. And for my final question related, I'd love to know what stood out to you about Scholars of Finance, what our mission, and you've been very generous with your time. You've been advising me personally. Here you are in the podcast. You know, you, you've been helping in a number of ways. Why did you choose to get involved and why might you encourage others to get involved with SOF as well? Yeah, look, uh, you know, what's impressed me is a couple of things. Number one was, look, the, the, the organization and what it stands for and trying to encourage people to go into finance roles, but also recognize that doing so doesn't mean that you have to sell your soul to do that, that there are, you know, that, that, you know, finance and ethics and morality are not incompatible things. I mean, that's an important mission for me. Secondly, and I think I've said this to you personally, right? I think, you know, what the reason, I, you know, that you and I have spent time together is, look, I just am impressed by the way you're thinking about the organization, you know, kind of the ambition you have to grow this thing. And, you know, again, to me, like in, in a small way, if I can help, you know, a, uh, a CEO who's kind of ha- knows what the knows what the goals and the ambition is, uh, but, you know, kind of really wants to kind of, uh, you know, have sounding boards to bounce ideas off of, to me, that's actually a, a great use of my time. Thanks, Scott. Really, really appreciate it. We're at time. And I'm so, so grateful for you coming on the podcast today. Just thank you for coming. Hope to have you on again soon. And there's so many more questions I didn't get a chance to ask today. Hope you have an amazing day and, and, and look forward to having you on again in the near future. Well, thanks, thanks Scott. for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. Tomorrow.